Hey everyone, before we jump into this episode where we had the pleasure of chatting with Aline Brush McKenna, I want to give a quick heads up that the sound quality changes a little over halfway through the episode. Obviously, we're all recording remotely, and that comes with some technical hurdles, so we appreciate your understanding on that front. Now, without further ado, our conversation with Aline Brush McKenna. Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay. Today, we have the pleasure of chatting with screenwriter, producer, and director Aline Brosh McKenna. She's the writer behind, among other things, the TV series Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, We Bought a Zoo, Annie, 27 Dresses, and of course, The Devil Wears Prada. I'm joined by part of the Lessons from the Screenplay team, Trisha Arand. Hello, everyone. And Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And joined, of course, by our guest, Aline Brosh McKenna. Aline, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm happy to be here. And by here, I mean in my house. Right. <laughs> as, as we all are. Mm-hmm. So we, we did a podcast episode analyzing The Devil Words Prada. Uh, and that was kind of after doing a video that we did back in 2018 uh, for right. Lessons from the Screenplay. Um, a video on the first 10 pages of The Devil Words Prada, which Trisha right. pitched and yeah, became one, one of my favorite videos that we've done. And those those first 10 pages are just such a great intro to the story. It was really fun getting to dissect and really dive into those. And so sort of going off of starting a story, I'm curious for you and your process, where do you start when writing? How do you begin to break a story? You know, I, I think I start from the characters. I generally spend a lot of time talking about and thinking about the characters. And, um, you know, that's, I think that's slightly annoying thing to say when you're talking to a young writer because it feels like ugh, I don't know she's a girl and she does stuff (laughs) (laughs) and I think in some ways it would be more useful to start with the action but the action really is shaped by how your characters are going to react to it um and so like I was thinking the other day you know if you wanted to write a script from scratch really quickly the thing that would hamper you is the fact that you wouldn't know who you were writing about and how they would react And, um, so I do a lot of like talking about the characters, thinking about them before I spend too much time crafting the story. And I actually try not to get too wedded to any story beats that I then have to jam the characters into. Um, I leave it if, if I can a little loose so that I can sort of knit, knit it into what I think, how I think they would be reacting. And it has a better result for me than trying to march them through a predetermined outline. But that's, you know, one of the things that's tricky about talking about process is every project is different. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I approach them all a little differently. Um, Adaptations are different from originals and, you know, single lead movies are different from ensemble pieces um, or two handers. So they're all a little bit, different. And I find that one of the fun things about the job is sort of being able to fit the process to the project. Yeah. I read the Devil Wears Prada book and the novel. And so Mm -hmm. of course, with that instance, you were taking on an adaptation. Um, Mm -hmm. Was it the the same process you're describing in terms of starting with the character? Like, what was it about Andy that you immediately sort of like focused on um, and then use that to sort of like think about her arc? You know, not necessarily the story beats, but just like, what is her journey? For the movie, it was important to me that Andy start out from a place of slight wrongheadedness and mm-hmm. um that was an important thing that you get that she's starting from this place of naivete um mm-hmm. and a slight smug that slight smugness that you have when you graduate or you mm-hmm. start your um <laughs> yeah. you know especially when you've gone to a fancy uh, educational institution that she thinks she's like you know what i might be able to crack this i'm gonna be pretty good at this and i I love the moment where um, the acting moment where Anne is, is putting her portfolio together and she sort of gives a little shake of the head, like, you know what? This uh-huh. stuff's pretty good. I gotta say. <laughs> um, so that was the major. And I think that I was able to channel that because I had been that person mm-hmm. and I was sort of looking back on um, the kind of clueless, slight smuggery that, I had had when I graduated from college and sort of not understanding how the world works 
how people work, you know. Um, so that was that was important. And then for Miranda, it was important that she not be just sort of evil, bad boss, bad. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. That she that we find a way that you understand the pressure she's under. So it was interesting mm. in that case. We almost worked from the externals a little bit when I was first talking about the character. I remember, you know, spending a lot of time thinking like, oh, she's lived in this particular world where particular things have been asked from her and she's in a very male dominated corporate structure. And so she in some ways has been shaped by the forces around her. I don't know what Miranda would have been like if she had been raised in a, come up in a uh, matriarchal format. Yeah. Um, so a lot of my pitch was, was here's who I think the, the leads characters are. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why that opening is contrasting her to the other more polished, glamorous, um, women that she's about to meet that she doesn't really even know existed. Um, yeah. So yeah, the character, it's just sort of like when you're telling a friend a story about someone they don't know you have to say, oh, it's my friend, Sarah. She's blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. You know, you wouldn't, it's not as interesting a story if you don't say like, oh, she's very picky and she is, you know, very type A. And, you know, you need, you need some context for the, the story. So mm-hmm. um, that one, you know, so I, I spend a lot of time thinking. And then when I say talking, just sort of, you know, any collaborator, I have mm-hmm. just 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 bugging them as much as I can to talk <laughs> about those things. And um, when I worked on Crazy X, it was nice because Rachel was very much the same way. And we spent a lot of time talking about we have like a absurd amount of detail left over mm-hmm. um, about those characters. I always say like we had a folk art level amount of detail. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. And we would talk about those characters as if they were real because they were in some ways real to us. And I think that's, you know, my instinct is always to see if, if there's a way to, to zag a little bit where you're supposed to zig or zig where you're supposed to (laughs) zag. And I think the key to doing that is having characters that are a little unexpected, like, you know, Andy being this sort of naive, slightly tiny above it all, you know, alum, she also considers herself morally above all these folks. Yeah. Um, which is why later when she agrees to sort of dump out Emily to go and and go to Paris, um, you know, that's, that is maybe something that you don't as much see coming and she sleeps with the Christian Mm -hmm. and all that. And so I think, Mm -hmm. um, those little kind of human contradictions are what can make your story come alive. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, and I think it's something that really comes through when the character is the focus is when it's something there's something refreshing about Devil Wars Prada where I'm like I don't it doesn't really matter to me who she ends up with at the end of the movie cuz that's not what it's about. It almost right. doesn't even matter to me if she ends up with the company or, or whatever. It's like she just there there's something that she needs internally and I'm the most exciting thing to me is watching her go through it and come out on the other side and I think that's when you know you have a, a of character driven story, a focus story. Yeah. People refer to that movie as a romantic comedy. And I guess I've come to understand that that is um, because of the tone. The tone mm-hmm. is a, is a romantic mm-hmm. comedy tone because it's not a romantic comedy story. Yeah. And that's true with a lot of the stuff I've written. That's, you know, um, morning glory is not a romantic comedy, but it's got a romantic comedy tone. Mm-hmm. And so that's what, I mean, I, you know, they, they all have, love interest in them, but they're not primarily romantic comedies, but movies where the women are the lead and they're trying to figure their lives out kind of get grouped into that area, whether or not they're primarily concerned with love or not. Yeah. Right. It's a problem with genre. It's like, you can't just say this is a movie about, you know, crazy ex-girlfriend is a great example of like, here's something you've never seen before. So how do you, how do you sort of market something that is fresh and original? And it's great when something's fresh and original, but like you were saying, it's like, oh, there's a female lead and like there's a romantic interest. It must be a romantic comedy. <laughs> well, that's different because that one is a romantic comedy in that we were like sending up romantic comedies always sure, sure. and the, yeah. the tone and sort of, you know, when our visual comps in a lot of ways were sort of the kind of clean, crisp 
romantic comedy visual language too, so that the audience in that in that case it was an attempt to get the audience situated in a genre that they felt comfortable with that had all the signature markers of something they felt comfortable with and then be like, Oh, this is weird. This is strange. Mm-hmm. This is not what we're, that's, this is not what we're used to here. Um, and I think that was an important element of it. Like Rachel sometimes in the beginning would say like, why do I have to have my hair done and my makeup done? Like she's going through a shitty time. And mm-hmm. it was because in a romantic comedy, you know, they, they generally look, pull together no <laughs> yeah. matter what their their uh, travails are and so later when we did really strip her down in some of the darker scenes it was very noticeable it was like it was one of the ways in which we were kind of stripping the genre um <laughs> was to to show that she's kind of stepped outside the genre because she no longer looked like that girl yeah, I love that moment in um, 27 Dresses where Judy Greer is wearing like the two day walk of shame outfit. It's so funny to me because she looks amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's like she's wearing, you know, the, the guy's shirt and sash and whatever. Catherine Nigel's one of the most beautiful women ever to draw a breath. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She convinces she convinces you that she has terrible romantic problems, which is not to say beautiful women can't have romantic issues, but she, she plays in every woman. And I think... Mm-hmm. Part of the reason that works is because we have a certain um, suspension of disbelief when we watch things that are in that tone that we understand that like in real life, her hair might not be done so nicely or, you know, her clothes might not be. So I always wanted in Crazy X for her to rewear stuff because... Mm-hmm. Um, on TV and movies have an endless supply of jackets, for instance. <laughs> right. like, most people have like four or five jackets that they rotate um so i always wanted to pull back in the stuff we'd already seen um especially as we got sort of into the series and and she was becoming less and less that kind of rom-com girl Mm -hmm. it reminds me just like recently we were having a conversation on the podcast about butch cassidy and the sundance kid you know which is one of the best westerns ever but Mm -hmm. we were talking about how it's sort of purposefully poking at the Western genre and like kind of Uh deconstructing it and and pulling the rug out from under it. And um, like, I don't know, I just would love to hear from you about why you wanted to do that with rom-coms with Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and also what you think Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is sort of potentially poking at in the musical genre as well. Well, I was always a little bit trying to do that. I mean, I, um, Mm -hmm. and sometimes it didn't really end up on screen, but I always was trying to populate if, if I had any idea coming into the business, it was like to populate those movies with women that uh, I related to that felt more multidimensional to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've tried to do that kind of across every genre. I did that when I worked on Cinderella for a, a little while. I felt very left out of many of the dominant narratives in the culture mm-hmm. um, because, you know, my parents are immigrants. I grew up in a pretty homogenous community mm-hmm. with like hairy arms and a unibrow. And, and I was always trying to kind of find myself inside those stories. So I was always a little bit trying to, I think Prada in its lack of emphasis on the romantic aspect. And I think morning glory in showing a young woman at work, you know, being a boss. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a lot of the stuff that I had done before, even 27 dresses is really an attempt to show that they're behind that sort of, love love struck you know romantic obsessive lies a codependent um i was always Mm -hmm. trying to do that a little bit but i was uh, um you know the the demands of the genre were pretty thirsty i mean it was hard to pull away from those things when you were making one of those things and frankel who directed um prada used to say it was a cake and eat it two movie so you had Mm -hmm. a lot of the Mm -hmm wish fulfillment that you wanted, but it was, it was a kind of slight deconstruction, I would say of that, those Mm -hmm. tropes. And then I, by the time I got to crazy X, I'd gotten more interested in that. And then when I met Rachel, that was the thing we connected on most of all was that we had been uh, fed this sort of idea of what a conventional female heroine Mm-hmm. Um, especially in things with with male attention, had been how they had been portrayed, and, and her background was very much in musicals, 
And I would say, and my background was in screwball comedies of the thirties and forties. And what those have in common is you have sometimes wonderful moments for the female characters. Mm-hmm. And then somehow at the end of the movie, they're sort of punched in the face and sent back to even the ones, some of the ones I really love. They're mm-hmm. sort of somehow you end up with Catherine Hepburn ho- holding a saucepan. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so it was, it's possible to really love a genre and then also want to kind of subvert it. And I of think course. a lot of people do. I think a lot of people do that in action movies. I think, you know, like Die Hard was that. Yeah. He's very vulnerable, you know. So I'd always sort of been trying to do that, but it was a little bit, I would say, subtext. And then with Crazy Axe, mm-hmm. it was the text. The text was because it was literally about a woman who believed some messed up things about herself because she had consumed so much popular culture. So we drew on romantic comedies. We drew on musical comedies. We drew on princess narratives. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you can think of the range of things we parodied. We, you know, <laughs> literally everything, <laughs> every yeah. kind of pop music, because pop music is very confusing. And I found it yep. very confusing as a woman sort of coming of age. Mm-hmm. You know, I was just listening to um, I was listening to Demi Moore's memoir on Audible. Mm-hmm. And she was saying, you know, we were not she's a little older than I am. But, you know, we were not taught anything positive about sexuality. Like, yeah, we were just mm-hmm. shown slideshows with like genitals that had been horribly deformed by STDs (laughs) and, you know, told to be safe. And it was terrifying. The seventies were terrifying. Then the eighties were terrifying justifiably, you know, because of AIDS. And I think that I just, there was very few places that you could look for like a grown rounded, sophisticated view of women's behavior inside romantic relationships and sex and what sex is like. And I never could do that in the romantic comedy movies really because they were all Mm PG 13. It was not really their view of sexuality. I would say was not particularly emancipated. Although I do love that in Prada, she sleeps with him and then you see her in bed and she's got a toe ring and (laughs) (laughs) but uh so so in crazy x that's one of the reasons that we we deliberately took on like you're Mm -hmm. not going to talk about periods and vaginosis and Mm -hmm. um abortions and things like that in a conventional rom-com yeah so that was one of the wells that we were able to go back to is like what what are we not talking about that women are talking about but the culture is not talking about and you know one of the things i said a lot in the writer's room is i know a lot about jizz because of all the movies I've watched in my life. There's the male sexual response. I knew way more about the male sexual response than my own growing up because like, you know, from Porky's or whatever. And then I wish you could Mm. see how hard I'm nodding, Aline. (laughs) (laughs) But then, you know, for women, there just was nothing comparable. And like, you have to, you would have to talk to other women about, you know, period sex or, Mm -hmm you know, your UTIs, we did a whole song about UTIs. And so we were always looking for the things that had not been depicted. And sadly, there were tons of them. Yeah. It's so nice now that that is finally starting to like become a thing that we're seeing, you know, and like thinking about bridesmaids and, and things like the spy who dubbed me and some of that stuff. It's all so good. And so just so lovely to be seen. I also think Liz Lemon. Oh, yeah, (laughs) definitely. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Lena, you know, I, I yep. think that those at least gave people a template because, you know, we were doing Crazy X on a network. And I think those shows gave them a template for understanding like, oh, yeah, OK, that that's a thing that exists. Yeah, it's that situation where someone always has to be the first. Yeah. Yeah. And so then once once you have one example, you can say in the room, it's kind of like this. Yeah. You know, it's funny. We didn't have a lot of comps. I think because we were musical, we talked a lot about Mm -hmm. romantic comedies, but we more, we talked a lot about our lives too. And um, what the people we knew had experienced. Um, That was Mm -hmm. a big part of our pitch, but definitely female anti heroines, female (laughs) anti heroines. I don't know why that word came out like that. (laughs) A lot of that, I, you know, that sort of Liz lemon and, and girls that helped us just with people wrapping their minds around it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
I'm also curious, you know, you were saying you were, you were kind of deconstructing different genres and, and looking at romantic comedies and other things from pop culture. Like, what does that look like? Like when you sit down, like, is, do you just kind of have this intuitive wealth of knowledge, I'm sure, about what pop culture is and ways you want to subvert it? Oh, well, I mean, we had a genius, we had a genius writer's room. I mean, we had, mm-hmm. um, I mean, there was me and Rachel kind of, you know, leading the creative charge, but we had a genius writer's room, um, the room, the script room, and then the the songwriting room, which was Rachel, um, Jack Dolgen and Adam Schlesinger. And then we had 10 writers, including me and Rachel, and they're all brilliant. And they had, a, you know, they had all different, they were all, all different backgrounds and had all different kind of points of view. But you know, we had a writer who knew a ton about musicals and we had writers mm-hmm. who knew a ton about romantic comedies. We had writers who came from a sketch comedy background, which is really about understanding tropes and deconstructing them. So, um, yeah, I mean, we had a brilliant room and they're all, they've all gone on to great success and we had essentially the same room for four years. So that was, you know, and, yeah, and when we got stuck and when we got stuck, we would go back to, kind of those tropey things and talk about, you know, what are the, because those were all the messages um, that we had all grown up on, particularly the women in the room, but the men too, you know, the men had a lot of experience with like sort of being told certain things. And um, we had a wide variety of male characters, um, you know, Josh and Greg and Nathaniel. And we, that was really an attempt to talk about how those things there's a toxicity for men too, particularly yeah. with Nathaniel, yeah. who'd been sort of, yeah. who's like a quote unquote winner, you know, and what, what the cost of that was. And that's the kind of thing that like, I wasn't really able to do in a more traditional movie where you weren't really mm-hmm. able to send up those, you know, I would say like Prada sends up uh, Miranda and Morning Glory definitely sends up the sort of old school CBS anchor doesn't have to be CBS, but that's what I grew up on. <laughs> and so, but that level of meta made it a really fun show to write. Yeah. And was there something about the TV format that you felt allowed you to be more creative and take those kinds of risks that you couldn't do in movies? Yeah, just TV has been, is and has been more open lately to doing more innovative stuff. I think we've all seen that. And what's nice is that the sort of streaming and cable spaces have I think opened up the more traditional places to be you know to doing different types of things and it's great like it's sort of it's 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 worked backwards so it's 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 been nice to see that like you know Fleabag is going to do more for network television series than than anything because it's it's people love it and they see that it works and they see that there's a hunger for it so that's you know the the evolution of cable and streaming has helped has has i think raised all the boats creatively oh definitely yeah it's been it's been nice to see like less of a focus on the week to week kind of shows and the more you know series based which you can do uh with you know obviously you can do with just the release all episodes at once thing but even weekly shows you know it's it's yeah i mean i love a good i love you know a good procedural is a beautiful thing but i sure. think um just sort of you you know pushing the boundaries is it's just it's much more the norm right now mm-hmm. yeah definitely yeah. it's it's almost like when you see something too familiar these days it's just it's it's like okay what next i mean no one these days knows what a procedural even is it feels like <laughs> so it's just like you know they're just kind of not making new ones um it'll be interesting to see if that like circles back around if well they are they do and they're they're very i think they probably have more viewers oh i yeah Mm-hmm. definitely yes but i think it's sort of in the and there, you know there are great ones and also there's sitcoms that are more traditional that i love but it's it's given definitely given license to people to do and, and we were specifically given license to really let it rip by the network they were extremely extremely supportive of us yeah that's awesome yeah we so on, on the podcast we haven't talked a ton about uh writing for tv and how a writer's room works and and what being a showrunner like really looks like um Uh i'd love if you could sort of like summarize and paint that picture of what it what it means to have an awesome writing room and how you kind of tackle each week's episode etc well 
I mean, for a screenwriter, it's kind of like, it was like crazy fun because I had spent Mm -hmm. most of 20 years alone in a room. And (laughs) the fact that I could get to sit in a room with super smart people, you know, most of the, the, the development of the first part of the series was just me and Rachel. We wrote the first, we wrote a pilot and then we wrote two more episodes and then we started, we did a room with our two senior writers um, for about four weeks. And that was great because that got us kind of up up and running in terms of understanding. It was great because we, Rachel and I had learned to speak in sort of like a nil-like twin speak. And so <laughs> opening it up to just two people was good in the beginning. And then we opened it up to a whole room and they really taught us how to do it. I mean, I solicited a lot of feedback from them about the best way to do it. And they were very helpful. So the way we did it was um, like a more traditional comedy room in that. So we would break the stories for the season overall, and then we would break the individual episodes. And then the writer of that episode would outline the episode, come back. We'd all work on the outline, refine the outline. And then they would write the script and come back and we'd rewrite the script. But the way I did it was I, my screen was up on the, my computer screen was up on the screen. So all the rewriting was done by me with, the folks in the room and what was good about that was they were able to see that I was sort of a equal opportunity rewriter that I would rewrite anybody equally including myself our drafts Mm -hmm. my drafts and Rachel and our drafts got rewritten just as much as anybody else's Mm -hmm. and we did it by and large together um I would sometimes polish and rewrite stuff on my own after hours but we we mostly did it in the room where Rachel and I also worked alone on the weekend sometimes, but it was very much a, um, a process where the, the, the screen would be up there and people would be, you know, to, to work in a room with all those smart people who are calling out, not just jokes, but, you know, story pitches and character moments. And I mean, that was an enormous privilege And, you know, you just have so many great people giving you so many great ideas. And I think one of the things that's challenging about running a room was learning sort of how to, you know, balance hearing everybody, but also you got to get going because the exigencies Mm -hmm. of production are so enormous. So it was sort of a balance between let's try and get the best idea we can, but also we got to get going. So I got pretty adept at that. Was it? particularly challenging because obviously Rachel is also then the star of the show so yeah. she can't be in the room the whole time since she has no to be it was set. hard yeah how did that work she and I worked together in the off season mm-hmm. and we would come in with like a 15 page document of ideas for the season and they would hold up for like the first few and she would mm-hmm. be with us for the first two months and then she would go off and then it became uh I would try and sort of eyeball her workload and then pick a moment to bring her like she couldn't see every draft of an outline. I would have to say, okay, read this Mm -hmm. one and then get her feedback. Um, And we didn't have time to loop her in, you know, on every step. So I would decide, okay, read this outline, read this draft. Um, The first season we did a lot where she would come over to my house on the weekend and we would, I would, review everything with her and then we got better at her being able to like look at an outline look at a draft and go boop 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 like Mm -hmm. but we the ad's tried to keep us away from each other because if we got anywhere near each other we would stop and talk about we didn't get to see each other very much so we would stop and talk about Mm -hmm. the episodes and it would it Mm -hmm. would prevent her from going to set so um (laughs) we you know i just did the best i could to loop her in as much as i could and then two-thirds of the way through the season it would be really challenging because she would be so tired um and I just tried the best I could to make sure that she was aware of everything that was coming out of the room but it was always it was always a challenge and it's it's sort of an unusual Mm -hmm. it's it's not a challenge most people writing will run into yeah yeah when I'm curious are there lessons or experiences that you had in that setting that you feel like you're going to bring forward into your writing as you're doing solo projects Yeah. I mean, I think I learned a lot about how to filter ideas and what make a quicker decision about, is this working? Is this not working? I will say that our last episode aired last April. And since then I've written a couple screenplays and pilot. um, And when I work on my own, I don't 
plan as much because mm-hmm. with a with the TV show we had to like outline outline talk 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 mm-hmm. and then when I was rewriting I would have to because like when I we first started the room I would just start rewriting without talking and everyone was like what is she doing <laughs> so I learned I had to learn how to say hey I think we need to move this over here and da 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 and when I'm by myself now um, I really enjoy not having things as planned out, mm-hmm. but fe- I feel much more able to make those pivots because for 62 episodes, I had to verbalize to a room why I thought something was or wasn't working. And so I've mm-hmm. kind of kept that with me. And then the other thing is I will never, I, I had a lot of experiences in screenwriting where things were kind of taken away, ripped out of my hands at a point in the mm-hmm. process when I, and we're moved in a direction that was perplexing to me. And I mm-hmm. am working really hard to minimize that. I have a production production company called Lean Machine, and I produce all my own stuff. And um, I will be looking to not put myself in the position that I was as a screenwriter, which is, you know, asking for permission to be heard. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> listening to you describe the writer's room. I'm, I'm, empathizing a lot with that situation because i feel like that's how writing lessons from screenplay videos has been Mm -hmm. (laughs) especially early on i feel like there was a lot of Mm -hmm. trish and bren bringing ideas and then me starting to change things and then being like why i don't understand what's happening i was like oh right i have to communicate to people my thoughts Mm -hmm. and that's Mm -hmm. a that's a struggle so i it's definitely a good skill to learn and Mm -hmm. yeah it's a good good skill to learn just in general yeah yeah, but of of course it's it's also, you know, you were coming to Crazy Ex-Girlfriend with a ton of experience um in feature writing and so you had mm-hmm. some of that clout. Um and I'd love to hear from you about that transition, you know, as someone currently in my career that's basically only doing assignments and I'm just mm-hmm. doing things that people hand to me. Um mm-hmm. what was that like for you? What in the movie in the movie your- space? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, it's tough. It's look, you don't when you're entry level writer, mm-hmm. if you go on staff of a TV show, you don't really have you have, you know, you can do the best you can, but you can't really get your voice across when you're working on someone else's show. I mean, you can, but you're working on other people's vision. Mm-hmm. And as a movie writer, it's just it's this job is not set up for everyone to, you know, screenwriters are not the boss of anything or anyone. No, so we're not. You, the only things you can do are try to do such a good job that it's sort of undeniable, mm-hmm. or and be an awesome person so that people want to hear your opinion. Those are really the only things that you can do because it's it's a systemic thing where the screenwriter is seen as somewhat disposable, and um, yeah, it shouldn't be that way, and it doesn't make any sense, and and it not resulted in what they wanted to have resulted in um i mean i don't it's very confusing to me why you wouldn't want a writer on set for your whole shoot and i don't Mm -hmm. understand the system evolved in a way to protect directors from writers input and i think that's that's you know at best counterproductive um but they're you know unless you the only way to protect your writing as a writer in features is to, to direct right Mm-hmm. and have a nice have a producer who helps you but it's otherwise um it is not set up to protect your vision and so yeah. you, you got to find other ways to do it and that was you know one of the great things about transitioning into television was I just didn't have to apologize for taking mm-hmm. up space yeah and w- was that a conscious shift for you then where you're just like I, I can't do features anymore no I just no I just started doing I had worked in tv early and when I was younger mm-hmm. um and so I just wandered over there because I wanted to do this show with Rachel but then you have to be in charge because that's what a showrunner is and so and I actually took to it because it suits my personality a lot more so mm-hmm. I, I actually took to it pretty quickly um and again with the help of this amazing room that we had I don't think I can go back to being kind of in that other role but that was what I needed to do to get where I wanted to go and also I was a mom and I didn't feel like I didn't want to be on a tv show I wanted to have a more flexible schedule Mm. so Mm. there are a lot of considerations that went into it and then when the tv thing came up my kids were young teenagers so it, it, it worked out but everyone will have their own path but you know when I would complain that screenwriters 
are not very listened to, one of my friends would be like, it was on the sign-up sheet. It's not like they, it's not like someone told you that was not going to be the case. It's like, I don't understand. It's, you know, who told you that it was going to be this, like, that's all that anyone ever knows about screenwriting. Right. Speaking of creative control, then you directed a few episodes of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Yeah. How was that for you coming from the writing space? Oh, that was great. I mean, um, the closest job to being a director is a showrunner. So uh, by the time we got to the 18th episode of the first season, um, I, I already like had been working with the crew and working with the DP and doing all that stuff for the whole year. So I really didn't, it was, I was stepping into very comfortable spot there and Mm -hmm. it wasn't like I had to get up to speed with the material. So it was a very, very comfortable way to direct for the first time. Nice. Do you think that you would direct like a feature in the future? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I am directing a movie. We're supposed to go in October, but you'll let me know when Mm -hmm. we can do it. Just let me know. (laughs) Cause I don't know. Great timing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, real quick, you're talking about, um, you know, the the screenwriter being on set during a movie. Uh, mm. And I was reading about Little Women and I learned that there, there's this speech in Little Women that Amy gives where she basically says, like, we have to get married or have money like we don't have any choices in this world. And I thought, oh, how refreshing mm. for me as a, a man in 2019 to be like, oh, OK, that's why these characters are doing what they're doing. And then I learned that uh, Meryl Streep had basically asked Greta Gerwig to write that monologue in order to explain what is going on. But but the reason I wanted to bring it up was because I was immediately reminded of Trisha telling us on the Devil Wars Prada podcast that um, that in Devil Wars Prada, Meryl Streep had asked you to write the Cerulean sweater monologue. The Prada speech, there was a little like nugget of a few lines in there. And then she wanted to, she asked Franco if we could expand it. And that's what I did Mm -hmm. with her was we expanded it and um, kind of widened the scope of it. Yeah. She always felt like, I think particularly it would be helpful for men to understand fashion and also to, understand how those ideas are transmitted. I mean, Meryl is the smartest. I'm I'm not surprised that she suggested something that mm-hmm. really augmented augmented little women because she is one of the smartest um readers and interpreters of scripts. I mean, just apart from her brilliant acting, like I when I had meetings with her, she just always said the smartest things and she was she's very mm-hmm. good about sort of identifying the social critique inside a piece. Mm-hmm. So that's possibly where the, where that comes from. Yeah. And, and of course, we talked about this on the Devil Wars Prada podcast, but um, her take on the character there of Miranda is so human. And it's just really, you know, she's nominated for an Oscar for it, just really moving. You know, I think when we talk about like, quote unquote, rom-com, which we know Prada is not exactly but it's so rare that you get a true villain, like a human antagonist, um, mm. which which provides this like nice, clean story arc for Andy in a way that the genre doesn't usually afford. And so I think that's part of the reason why Prada and Meryl's performance in it is so iconic now, because it's a really great antagonist. And we don't often see that in this genre. It's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think that that in a way it's like it's not everybody's had a bad boss, but also I always felt like there's something to a mother figure there. Like mm. there's something to sort of someone who's telling you to do things and they seem illogical to you and they seem arbitrarily mean. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think in there's various aspects in our life when we, you know, we have to answer to someone and we can't question their authority. Um, mm. And so I think that's why that because like, you know, that that movie spoke a lot to very young girls and they never had a boss before, but they've certainly had a mom or a teacher or a coach mm. or something say you have to do things this way. That it's, I think it's a very universal because it's not I think I think that business is um, it's a very arcane little corner of the world. Mm-hmm. But that idea of having to answer to somebody who's being irrational I think is very relatable um Mm -hmm. and I think by Meryl dried up the character so much she made it you know she always wanted to pull back she played it very calm Mm 
Mm-hmm. So you can't dismiss you can't dismiss Miranda as being a hysteric, and that was in the script. But in working in working with her, it got drier and drier. I will say, when I first met her, the line that she pulled out was, "By all means, move at a glacial pace." <laughs> um, and so that was really helpful the first time I met with her to sort of know what she was interested in mm-hmm. and what things I could write towards because her taste is impeccable. Yeah, um, and just what. What a dream. I mean, how did you feel when you heard about the casting of that movie? I knew that she was reading it. And then Frankel called me and said she wants to meet with me. And if she likes it, she might do it. And then I I sat down on the street where I was. Sta- I sat down mm. on the curb because he's <laughs> wow. so wonderful. I knew she, I knew she was going to say yes once she met him because he's he's amazing. Nice. Yeah, I mean, she she was the hope. She was the dream. And it's it's very rare that you get the person mm-hmm. that is sort of your prototype. Mm-hmm. And then that that actually did influence the writing of the script. Is that right? Like we're talking about? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Having I, You always cut like I customized um, Emily's character was not British. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when I when we met, we had the first reading. She you know, she did it with the British accent because that's how she had auditioned. Um, and. So we, I rewrote it for her. I, I, I love to customize things for actors. And it's one of the things I loved about television is that mm. you have these long-term relationships with people. And so you can, and so you can really customize things so I can write to the actors is something I'd yeah. love to do. And I think the movies that I love the most, you can sense, mm-hmm. you can sense that Jerry Maguire is shaped to Tom Cruise, you know, yeah. you can sense, sense that Tootsie is shaped to Dustin Hoffman. And, <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, so I, I love that when that happens. Mm-hmm. I think about that when I watch the show Friends. I'm like, you can't write half this stuff. You just have to know the actors are are like this. And then, <laughs> then you could be like, and then like Phoebe does a weird noise. And it's like, she'll take care of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really a distinct joy because our cast was so incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, you know, one of the things I tried to do was foster a good communication between the writer's room and the actors so that, um, they could sort of come back with ideas saying like, Hey, this, this actor does this or loves this or plays the ukulele or whatever. Mm-hmm. Cause I knew that great things would sort of come from the writers knowing what the actors were capable of and interested in. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So kind of one of the, the last questions I, I want to ask is, you know, I, I think it's a common thing to ask advice for ex- aspiring screenwriters. Um, and I guess for me, the, the advice that I was I'm more interested in is like what are good routines that writers can build for themselves or or what are ways that you recommend people practice getting better at their craft like what things have worked for you what things have you learned from how has your process evolved and kind of what are what are the useful bits of of lessons you can extract from that you know I try and go by results you know I try and set goals and then figure out if I've met the goals on kind of a day-to-day basis and not fuss too much about how it gets done. So if you're saying like, I want to write five pages today, or I want to edit 20 pages today, however that happens, man, that's fine. If you write a page over breakfast and then you watch an old Doogie Hauser and then you go back and you do another half hour of work and then you eat a sandwich, like I don't, I think it's not helpful to say to people, it, it, I think it depends on your personality. Like mm-hmm. I'm not a person who can run five miles. <laughs> I would, I would rather take a, you know, I would rather take four mile long walks and, and, mm-hmm. and there are certain times, you know, doing a television show is just sprinting all the time and you have to do it and it never, never, ever ends. It never ends. So you're, you do not have the ability to procrastinate. You know, you have to, those pages have to go out, but if you're writing something um, really, even in that setting, you know, we would, the writer's room would kind of goof around for 45 minutes, you know, check in on each other. How was your weekend? We, there was a season where we did a lot of crossword puzzles and then you have, but you know, this script has to go out today or we need to get through the third act today. Or I think it's best to set goals and try and work that way. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're a baker and you need to have three dozen scones by the end of the day. If you get those done in three hours from 5 a.m. to 8 a.m., great. And if you get those done, you know, in fits and starts, it's so it's so difficult to do that. Um, 
I personally don't respond to like anything which seems like a really stern kind of spa regimen. Mm -hmm. Do you typically, I mean, obviously not right now, but do you typically leave your house and go like work in an office? Um, I do. Yeah. How does the environment affect your process? I mean, I have kids and as you heard, I have dogs and um, I do work at home. Um, I have an office at home and if I'm doing like heavy lifting on the first draft, I will sometimes do that. But you know, it depends. Sometimes I like to write at a coffee shop. Um, I have an office with my where my production company is, and and sometimes I go there. Um, I definitely have certain seats that work better. Like I have certain spots mm-hmm. where I can get stuff done. <laughs> yes. Um, and certain like orientations with respect to the room. Mm-hmm. I try and be open. I think I'm an, I'm a not very routinized person. And again, you know, you'll talk to other writers who are like, you know, I get up at five and I exercise and then I work from six to 10 and then I'm done for the rest of the day and then I do whatever. I mean, people have mm-hmm. their own thing, but I've never been a very routinized person. So I kind of do whatever works for me. And, and now I'm doing a lot of producing as well and helping other writers with their work and their projects. So that's a certain amount of meetings. And now we're all instead of being in person, it's all Zooms. Yep. A lot of mm-hmm. Zooms. So many yeah. Zooms. Yeah. <laughs> so many Zooms. Too many Zooms. Unnecessary amounts of I Zooms. I think that's I, a Dr. Seuss book. <laughs> Too many Zooms. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. So I, I always like hearing about different people's process and how they work because like you were saying, everyone works differently and different personalities resonate with different kinds of structures or lack thereof. Uh, and I think it's always nice to hear that everyone like you have permission to figure out what works for you there isn't a one right way or one wrong way the right way is just what works. well i think that's a very human thing to say like this is how you do it Mm -hmm. when we know that it's that's that works for that person and you know we're not we're everybody's different and i think anybody who prescribes anything to you that's just their own fear talking and their own kind of like wish and hopes for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but everybody has to find as long as it's consistent, you know, the most important thing right. about being about writing is, is getting the stuff. So I, I measure my output by what I made, not hours I logged. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I think people could, could afford to be, a little gentler on themselves in the process and maybe a little more demanding on themselves on in terms of the output. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing I really enjoy about our Beyond the Screenplay team is that we all are very different. I'm not. We all have our personal reasons that we love film, uh, what we're drawn to and why. We have some strong opinions. And I don't uh, know what you mean. <laughs> and if you want to continue to see us, especially Trisha, have some strong opinions off air, whether it's a group love fest about Jurassic Park or Trisha yelling at Michael about a movie he hasn't seen. That's not my fault that he hasn't seen those for the record. That's it's on him. It's true. It's true. This is why I've muted Trisha on Twitter. <laughs> you should definitely follow Beyond the Screenplay and all of us on Twitter and let us know what you think. Is there a movie that Michael hasn't seen that you want to scream at him about? Whose top 10 of the decade list did you agree with? Who was totally wrong? Do you, like me, hate it when CGI is too bouncy? Let's chat. Let's tweet. Let's talk movies. You had me a group love fest. (laughs) (laughs) Just because I would love to hear this from you. What is the thing that kind of excites you most about doing this every day? Like, you've been in it now for, you know, many years. And um, why do you keep doing it? What drives you with it? Telling stories is really satisfying. I will say um, what I love are the surprises and the turns and the things you can leave out. Like that's what Hmm. thrills me in in watching someone else's work. And what I love in my own is when you realize, oh, I can skip that. I can can jump to this scene uh, or I can go backwards or I can like the formal innovations of it really interest me because I think in the beginning, you're just kind of trying to nail down the like beginning, middle, end part of the process. And then once you're more comfortable in there, I really find a lot of joy in my own work and in other people's work in sort of seeing what is left out and what is, um, you know, how much information do you really need to carry? And I find myself having less patience for things that are explaining everything or carry a lot of information and really leaning into things where they you're being trusted to um 
to make leaps. So hmm. that's that's something that is is really a fun. You know, we did that a ton in the show, like just yeah. leaping. Um, and mm-hmm. those were always the funnest things to write. And it's not like, you know, we're not writing, it's not like I'm writing like super linear time bending things, but just understanding that when you tell a good story, what to leave out is as important as what you put in. Um, and I think in some ways it's the hardest thing to learn because in the beginning, you're just trying to make sure that the audience has all the information. And then, mm-hmm. um, as you get into a piece, I mean, even in your own, even if it's your first script, you can go back and say, like, did I really need to see that? Do I need to start with her hitting her alarm clock and waking up? <laughs> mm-hmm. Is that, do I, can I start, you know, do I need to see her making her breakfast and getting on the subway and like, or do we know that that's generally what happened? You know, if it's, if you're in any situation, what is the thing that you need to start mm-hmm. with? What do you really need in terms of background? what does the audience need to be armed with to kind of jump into a story with both feet? And it's really fast for me now when I write something, when I watch something, uh, I get, I get really impatient when it's every, every beat of it is sort of being uh, pre-digested. I think we're a very sophisticated audience now. So I love those leaps. It just reminds me so much of the first 10 pages of the Devil Wears Prada because that's exactly now I can't remember when you guys when you covered it. Did you use the script, the May script, or the shooting script? I can't remember because there's the one that we that Meryl read. It's the one that's online that has like a May script, May date on it, and then there's the one that's on um, uh, John August's website. That's the production script. I can't remember which one you guys worked off of. I believe it's the one that's hosted on John August's site. Okay, yeah, yeah. that's the um, because it used to start with. And I don't know if it's in that because there's somehow one of them got out and it's the one that floats around. Mm. Yeah, it's it actually starts with the um, awards thing in Paris and then mm. it flashes back. Oh, interesting. Yeah. As a frame story. It was tiny. It was like just a second. Um, and that was so that it was clear to people reading it that it was going to be Miranda's, that Miranda was super important in, in it. Mm. Um, and then we had the, the misdirection where she goes to the wrong building and then she goes to and, and interviews for the job and actually sits down with somebody that scene where she says that it was this or auto, auto, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever yeah. she says, auto, auto universe. <laughs> yeah. So there was a scene in HR where she went and sat down and then it got cut. Um, you're always cutting. We cut in the beginning of crazy acts you're always cutting the first act always there's always Mm. too much stuff in the Mm. first act Mm -hmm. that's just a real um so in that case it really was how how much into you really don't need to know that much about her before she interviews for the job but you do Mm -hmm. have to you do have to shine a light on she's not very she thinks she's got something great to contribute and she's not terribly sophisticated and she doesn't look like these other women. Yeah. Um, and she's, a, she's an alien in that world. And it's exactly. sort of like the thing I try and keep people into when they're telling me their stories is if you were telling this to someone, like we all know if you're, if you're telling a story about, Oh my God, I ran into my ex-boyfriend. And if that person doesn't know the ex-boyfriend, you'd say, you'd have to say, oh, and I dumped him and it was really terrible because then I started dating one of his friends and I thought he moved to New York and then it turns out he moved around the corner for me. You would have to, the things you would have to know are like, I dumped him. It's awkward. I went out with his friend. And then you would probably say something like, he's the kind of guy who blank, you know, you'd probably make some statement characterizing Mm -hmm. him. Mm-hmm. But you wouldn't start with like, I woke up, I brushed my teeth, I read the paper, <laughs> I had a tea, and then I went outside and ran into Brad, right? You would yeah. start with, so where would you start? You would start with a girl is headed to her car. She stops dead in her tracks. She sees Brad. Okay, how are we going to get the information that this is her ex-boyfriend and he's now her next door neighbor? Maybe she's talking to a friend on the phone at work and she's running late for work and she's saying, I've got the papers. I'll be right there. Oh, my God what oh my god it's brad you don't even maybe need even to say who that is can you get it out when you see brad can you just be like oh 
okay, she's seen someone that's made her uncomfortable. So mm-hmm. maybe we don't need to get it out in that sense. Maybe we don't even need to have her on the phone. Maybe she just stops dead, sees this guy. And then in the conversation with him, can you just get that it's awkward? Can Do you catch up on the B side with I dated his friend? Do you yeah. know what I'm saying? That's yeah. the fun stuff for me. As geeky as that sounds, mm-hmm. that's the fun <laughs> stuff for me. So I do that in my own work. And now that I produce other people's work, that's what we do all day is we sit and go like, maybe it's more interesting because obviously you could have somebody, you know, write an email that says, oh my God, my ex-boyfriend is sitting outside. What do I do? I dated him, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. But yeah. the fun of it is the discovery, you know? Yeah. So, and you, we instinctively know that when we're telling stories to other people, which is why I think it's really important to find people that you can talk to mm-hmm. and describe your stories to because mm-hmm. there's a countervailing human um impulse which we all know from bad storytellers which are often our moms to be like oh i got up and i was wearing a purple dress and i was wearing those jeans you know the ones that i got there liz claiborne and i got them on sale those and then i was like and i thought i'll roll up my sneakers i'll roll up my cuffs today you know like yeah that person generally your mom who tells like a long story with a lot of details and you're like what where am i yeah um mm-hmm. and so yeah i have that problem i <laughs> I, love, I love things that launch into the story recklessly launch into the story and i i'm driven crazy by things where people say hey maybe we should go to the supermarket and then they're in the supermarket right. and they, you know like i just would much rather i like to i really think that we we instinctively understand that when we tell stories we know what's boring mm-hmm. and so i one of the odd things that I have is I'm very pretty easily bored and so I'm I'm even pretty easily bored by myself <laughs> and so um I think it's really good to tune into your boredom mm. as writers like really tune into your own boredom right yeah you know when you go back to reread I mean your writing's gonna always bore you somewhat but when you go back to reread it it should feel mm-hmm. fun and juicy to revisit yeah, that was something John August actually said when we were talking to him. The experience he says he thinks a lot about the experience moment to moment of the audience in the movie. Like, how do they feel minute by minute watching the movie? And are they, you know, do you still have them? Yes. It doesn't have to be action. It just has to be the character continually moving forward, that propulsion piece. I think if you can get excited about the challenges of writing, that's an important part of being a writer, obviously, because <laughs> mm-hmm. there are many challenges. So if you can find joy in doing that, I think that's that's really great. Awesome. Well, so to quickly wrap up at the yeah. end of every episode, we do a what are you watching session um, where we talk about what, what we've been watching recently. Um, and so, Aline, we can have you go last. You can have time to brainstorm. Trisha, would you like to begin? What have you been watching lately? Sure. So there's a movie coming out that I'm excited about starring Javier Bardem and Elle Fanning called The Road's Not Taken. And I have not seen it, um, but it's by this British director, Sally Potter. And so I wanted to go back and I watched her like biggest movie up to this point, which is a movie called Orlando um, from 1992, Mm. starring Tilda Swinton and Billy Zane, um, based on a Virginia Woolf novel, which I actually also really like. And so it's a fascinating time bending thing. Basically Tilda Swinton plays like this young nobleman who meets Queen Elizabeth and she tells him never to age. And then he just doesn't age. Mm. And so then (laughs) Tilda Swinton like travels across centuries. Basically it becomes like this long I don't know, very episodic, you know, in different time periods, sort of like romance, you know, and she's playing this sort of androgynous character. It's fascinating. It's gorgeous. It's like, it's so beautiful. Um, All of the period sequences and costumes in it. And um, it's brilliantly like lit and shot. And um, anyway, really, really interesting film. I'm curious to see the new one. So check it out. It's called Orlando. Nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Orlando is very cool. Brian, what have you been watching? Uh, I watched a movie from Scotland called Wild Rose. 
um, which stars. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. It stars <laughs> Jesse Buckley as this like Scottish ne'er do well who wants to get to Nashville to become a country star. Which right off the bat, you're like, I've never seen that story told before. <laughs> um, and uh, and basically like her, she's like a criminal, really bad behavior, and that makes her relationship with her kids really fraught. So it's this very clear case of her desire clashing with her need, where there's this thing that she wants and then this thing that she needs, and she has to like make choices. Um, and I mean, that's all movies, obviously, but it's just like, it's like really like, here are the very clear two things. Um, mm-hmm. And she's amazing. And it's a huge part of why the movie works so well. She was also in Judy last year as this like proper British straight laced woman. And it's just cool to see a character and like basically do two roles back to back that are so uh, completely different. But yeah, Wild Rose just like it, it just really worked for me. And uh, it's a really fun, mm. interesting drama. Nice. Nice. Very cool. Yeah, I've been watching a lot of things for the channel and the podcast that I can't talk about. So I'm going to say (laughs) Westworld, which Alex has already mentioned. But I want to say specifically a thing in Westworld that happened that that got me excited. So back in like film school and all of my early movies, it was almost like a joke amongst my friends that every movie I made had a party scene in it. (laughs) And I didn't really think about why before, but in this season three episode four episode of Westworld there was this party scene that was exactly what I want from party scenes and made me (laughs) realize like why I like them as a storytelling device because they're just so much fun so in, in this party scene it's it's these two different kind of factions that are both after the same person and it's a like a masquerade party scene so everyone's wearing a mask so there's mm-hmm. this spectacle of you know the glamour and fun of a party but there's also this kind of secretness thing it, it reminds me of the great gatsby quote the you know and i like large parties they're so intimate uh-huh. like, I, I like just that mood of being at a big large party and having these little secrets and the maneuvering of all of it um and then there's like the social pressure of you know if anything crazy goes down there's going to be people around and so that creates interesting tension um so Westworld season three episode four has a cool party scene and that's <laughs> very specific recommendation very specific yes <laughs> um Aline what have you been watching well my favorite show on um Netflix that everybody should watch is a French series called Deep or Call My Agent in English and it's mm-hmm great and it's one of those things where like i envy people who haven't seen it it's just so (laughs) fucking funny and great um and i told a a friend that i was like so sad it was over and she recommended this uh, british show called w1a which is about the bbc it's a couple years old Mm -hmm. and it's a really hilarious very dry very british um workplace comedy it stars hugh bonneville but it has sort of a, a gangster's row of like incredible british hilarious people so we're about four episodes into that and really loving it um and then i did the double header of shtissel and unorthodox also on netflix and i can't recommend that more highly and in that order is probably good shtissel is two seasons because i was thinking of watching unorthodox it's real good and you know what it's unorthodox is an afternoon has incredible performance by this young actress named shira haas um, and she's also in Stissel. So that's how mm-hmm. I was so, 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 so sad when Stissel ended. And then Netflix is so clever. Um, <laughs> and it knew, it knew that I would want to watch Unorthodox. So that was really great. So yeah, that's my Netflix consumption. And then on Hulu, I watched Little Fires Everywhere. And that has been as, as is everybody, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has been like, it's so kind of, um, I have found it very engaging and glossy and great performances. And so I look forward to that every week. So a lot of TV. I guess I haven't been watching. Oh, we went back and watched Talents and Mr. Ripley. All, all <laughs> oh, nice. family. So good. And man, <laughs> it really, really, really holds up. Yeah. It really holds up. It's a master class, master class in screenwriting. Yeah. Truly. It's fantastic. I'm obsessed with Patricia Highsmith and the novel and that whole series. It's such a fascinating character. And like this, it's so, it feels so unpredictable. What are other Highsmith movies we should be watching? Well, Strangers on a Train, definitely. That was Uh a Patricia Highsmith novel. And then she also worked on the screenplay for Double Indemnity, I'm pretty sure. 
Oh, interesting. But have they adapted any of her books otherwise? Not nearly enough. They actually did adapt a second one of the Ripley ad. She wrote five books about Tom Ripley, and there was a John Malkovich version of the third book. Mm. Um, Mm. But all five of those books are excellent. Um, And I like... I love the glass key. There's a, she has a novel that I love called game for the living. Um, and Great. I don't know, she's, she's amazing. If I could adapt all of her novels, I definitely would. Amazing. Oh, and Carol, of course, Carol is a Patricia high. Carol. Oh, yeah. it, oh, okay. Yeah. That's right. 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 In a different yeah, that's genre. her other big one. Yeah. That's it's interesting when Carol takes that turn where it almost does kind of become like a crime right. thriller where there's right. like, they're being followed by a detective. Mm-hmm. It's very yeah. Patricia Highsmithy at that point. <laughs> Yeah, of course, of course, Carol. Yeah. Awesome. Well, great. Yes, thank you so much to our guest, Aline Brush McKenna. Thank you all for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Bye, Bye everybody. Bye.